Hello. I like to think there's some subtlety to my views of religion. I'm not a believer. It's not so much that I don't think there is a God. After all, as someone wise once said to me, if we all knew God was real, religion would become a form of politics as we castigated the Almighty for her failings and lobbied her to do better. But as I think people with faith are on the whole both happier and more benign than those without, I'm pleased that my wife and daughter go to Mass. I even sometimes accompany them, hoping vaguely for a moment of revelation. Few books have had as much impact on me as Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. Becker argues that our awareness and terror of death drives us to mania. And of course, death is so much more difficult to deal with without belief in something beyond life. So I've been fascinated to read a book about faith, about religion, and also quite a lot about death. And what's made it particularly stimulating is that the book in question is also often extremely funny. Bored of the same big ideas podcasts that teach you nothing? Sick of self-appointed leadership gurus who peddle the same tired old tropes? Want to really get under the skin of some fresh thinking? Then you've come to the right place. This is Forward Vision, the podcast presented by Matthew Taylor and brought to you by the Forward Institute. I'm delighted to be joined by the Reverend Fergus Butler-Galley, author of Touching Cloth, Confessions and Communions of a Young Priest. Fergus, how are you? I'm very well, and I'm very pleased to be with you. Well, well done on the book. You've had some lovely reviews, and I enjoyed it enormously. But when I say to you, how are you, I'm going to say it again, because at the end of the book, you're not in a brilliant place in the sense that you haven't got a ministry, you're not sure what's going to happen next. So have things picked up since you finished the book? Well, I suppose in a technical sense they have, but even when I wrote that, I think I was still in a good place because one of the driving truths of Christianity is that however bad the place may seem, there is still hope. And I hope that came through at the end of the book that I didn't think my place was entirely defined by the ways that the world would define it. The fact I didn't have a job, I didn't have a place to live, etc. That might seem like kind of a moment of failure. To me, it was a moment of hope and a moment of opportunity and a moment to say, this is what I believe to be right and true and proper, etc. So yes, things are technically much better. I have a parish that I'm going to in the new year, which I'm looking forward to enormously. Brilliant. Where's that? It's in Oxfordshire. It's in Charlbury, so just north of Oxford. But yes, I think part of the call of Christianity is to say, no matter how bad things get, we have to say there is a hope that's above and beyond our circumstances. Your book is mainly set in inner city Liverpool. So inner city Liverpool to Charlbury, I can't imagine a more <laughs> radical shift in the socioeconomic status of your parishioners. But people have the same problems wherever you are, really. People die, people are born. People want to get married. People suffer tragedies and triumphs. And so there's a reason why the Church of England is the Church of England, if that makes sense, that we're there for people, whether they're in Chelsea or whether they're in Bridlington, whether they're in Land's End or whether they're in Sunderland. The whole point is that we're there for everyone. And I've found that 
it isn't really to do with class differences. It's to do with the fact that people want a priest there at those key moments in their lives. And I'm as much looking forward to do that in Charlbury as I did in Liverpool. Yeah, I'm interested in that, and I'm sure that's true. But I'm just thinking of Giles Fraser. I'm on the moral maze of Giles Fraser. Yeah, I, I'm a good friend of Giles. He's a good man. And Giles has swapped tough, gritty elephant and castle for the much more kind of salubrious surroundings, I think, of the queue or Twickenham or somewhere. It's queue, yeah. And I, I kind of felt when he got that shift that he felt somewhat guilty about the fact that he was looking forward to having a slightly easier life. There's an element of guilt, but so I covered for Giles. When Giles left Elephant and Castle, I was his sort of fill-in. I went down to St Mary's Newington and I covered the parish there, which I loved. I had come at that point from a parish in Chelsea, so about as posh, as grand as you can get. There were fewer problems in Elephant and Castle than there were in Chelsea, honestly. Because I think there, people are coming to church for a very clear reason. To encounter God uh, isn't because of status, isn't because of wanting to be near their friends, etc. They are there because they believe in this stuff and it matters to them. And so being there on the front line is in some ways easier because you can say, like, yes, this is what God says. This is the reality of belief. It's difficult. It's tricky to preach the complexities of the gospel to people who live in Chelsea or Kew or Charlbury, for that matter, is a bit more complex, I think. Yeah, I guess another dimension of this is diversity, isn't it? Because I think Giles has spoken to me also in the past about the fact that his parish, when he was in South London, is a very diverse congregation and reflected the diversity of the international Anglican community. So, for example, some more kind of theologically conservative groups, particularly I think those from a, the kind of African background, for example. So I don't know whether there was that much diversity in Liverpool, how, how big a thing, not so much diversity of kind of ethnicity, but a diversity of perspectives on the church. Well, there's a great saying about 11am is the most segregated hour politically, racially, in terms of class in the American week. I think the opposite is probably true in Britain, in that I earnestly believe that most people who go to churches, in Church of England churches in England, are probably sat next to someone who they will not agree on in terms of politics, in terms of social issues, in terms of economic policy, you name it. And yes, I think there's something very profound about the Church of England's mission in that regard. Do we always get that right? Probably not. But yeah, I think fundamentally, Giles's congregation reflected that in terms of the global Anglican perspective. I think the average Anglican congregation is more diverse than you think. I remember a very dear friend of mine going to a parish he was attending regularly during the time of Brexit. And the vicar at the time assumed that everybody voted Remain. It was a sort of classic Oxfordshire parish. Demographically, it was a fair assumption to assume that everybody voted Remain. In fact, the more working class members of that congregation, who were sort of normally valued as being the kind of representatives of, in inverted commas, the normal parts of that town and village, they had voted Leave. And I think they did feel ostracized, receiving politicized 
sermons from the pulpit. So I think clergy do have to be very careful, whether it's about sexuality, whether it's about constitutional matters, whether it's about the European Union or the monarchy or immigration or whatever it is. We have to remember that we are the church for everyone. Now, of course, we have to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says certain things about the monarchy and immigrants and all kinds of things about welcoming the stranger and loving those who are on the outsides of society. That said, we have to remember there might be people there who interpret that in different ways. And I think sometimes that tension between the clergy and their people can be very difficult. Now, back to the book, Fergus. So when I was reading it or told people that I was interviewing you, there was a divide. And the divide was between the people who understood the phrase touching cloth <laughs> has a lewd reference and those who didn't. And I, I'm kind of fascinated by this. I wanted to go to the highest authority for a definition of the phrase touching cloth. And of course, that meant going. And by the way, sensitive listeners may want to turn down the volume for the next 30 seconds. So of course, I went to Viz Magazine's Profanosaurus. Yes. And it defines touching cloth as that stalling stage immediately after Turtle's head when the Sir Douglas establishes contact with the trolleys, <laughs> as in, is there a bog round here, mate? I'm touching cloth. What does it tell us about you, Fergus? A, you kind of wanted to give your book a title where some people would immediately chuckle and others wouldn't know why it was funny at all. And also, something just in the former group, I mean, basically obscene. Yes. <laughs> I think it's important to remember that scatological humour certainly in the West, was invented by clergymen. So Rabelais, who wrote the great French comic novel Gargantua and Pantagruel, he has this long, protracted narrative around, again, sensitive listeners, please, you turn down, around farting, around defecating. There's an absolutely hilarious scene where this giant, Gargantua, is forced to use what we might turn to Andrex or uh, similar brands, and he uses a swan's neck instead, and there's this big argument about whether this is a morally right thing to do, given that swans are the birds of kings. And of course, Dr. Swift, Jonathan Swift, who is the author of Gulliver's Travels, he was the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin. Rabelais was a monk. Swift writes his glorious stuff about the nature of humanity and the idea that when we talk about God breathing air into human lungs in fact that was farting so the idea that the scatological and the theological are somehow not related is pure victorian fantasy i'm afraid the reality is that the idea that bums and farts and poo being funny is deeply rooted in the christian tradition whether it's rabelais or the swift or whether in fact it's augustine and aquinas the great theologians who talk about the idea of the body being ridiculous we have that in Cranmer, who writes the Book of Common Prayer. And there's this long-running trope of the idea that we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We are worms and not like men. The human body is funny, but the soul is worthy of praise and worthy of redemption, crucially. And so the idea that one might name a, a memoir in a sort of slightly provocative way is somehow detracted from the Christian tradition, I think is unfair. I think actually deep down, I hope I'm tapping in in a very 
mine away into something that is much more deeply rooted. Now, if people don't know that, it's up to them really to educate themselves beyond, as I say, Victorian fiction that we have, that Christians are prudish and uninterested in the bodily. I think it's up to us to find the funny in that and then work out the way in which that points us to God. I have to say, I've been doing these podcasts for years. I think that that answer to a question about Viz Magazine's Profundosaurus is called... <laughs> it's either brilliant or unspeakably pretentious, but I'm choosing... <laughs> choose... Both and, both and, I hope. <laughs> I'm choosing brilliant. Now, the book, the book is a, a wonderful mixture of vocational memoir, collections of anecdotes, commentary, some of it quite profound, not in a heavy-handed way, but profound nevertheless. And towards the end, a little bit of that kind of jolly tone rather shifts. This is a really clunky question. It's one I normally start with, but what was your aim in writing the book, Fergus? I suppose I genuinely wanted to tell the story of that year, of what was it like having the first year of being a priest? Because that's both a, a topic alien and interesting, I think, to most people. Most people would say, what was your first year in ministry like? What was it the first year wearing a dog collar, first year wearing a cassock, first year preaching and celebrating Holy Communion? What was that like? So I wanted to answer that on a practical level, but I also wanted, I suppose, to speak of the stories, the stories that are inherent in every single Church of England parish. And I wanted to remind people that every time you see a vicar, they're not simply ministering on behalf of their own ego or on behalf of their own stories. But every time they step out there, they are both, A, speaking about the message of Jesus Christ, and B, they are there to speak about the lives of people who they've buried and married and baptised. So I wanted to show, I guess, the layers of ministry, but also the kind of blind panic, if I'm honest, of what it feels like putting on a dog collar for the first time. Yeah, it's interesting. This podcast is partly around leadership. It's sponsored by a wonderful ethical leadership organization, the Ford Institute. So I was thinking about leadership reading the book. I mean, as a priest, you are a community leader, whether you like it or not. And in a sense, it's an instant status. I'm, obviously, you've gone through the process of training and education and all of that. But normally, leadership is the top of the greasy pole. We kind of climb up to it through various rungs and ranks. But you, in a sense, you become a leader. You have to become a leader. You have the kind of legitimacy of a community leader from day one, not just on religious matters, but also in terms of the welfare of your parishioners. Is that something you relished? being an overnight leader. Well, absolutely, that's right, in that as a priest, you found yourself being asked all kinds of questions that had no relation to your sort of spiritual role. So suddenly I found myself leading on a food bank. I found myself leading in terms of the legal status of asylum seekers. In Liverpool, we had the Home Office's main passport office in our parish. And that meant that we had an awful lot of people coming into the church in desperation, having been turned down on their fifth, sixth, seventh interview with nowhere else really to go. So suddenly you found yourself an expert in immigration law. You find yourself an expert in the provision of nutrition to children. You're in charge of education stuff. The idea that 
children might get into certain schools at certain times. That was my job as well. So yeah, you were very much thrown into the deep end. I mean, in terms of leadership training, if we're talking about broader leadership, there was no better training really than being a curate in the Church of England because I suppose deep down, you were being asked to lead in every single aspect of the community at once. And yet also, almost every time you reached a certain level of leadership, so whenever, for instance, we found a legal case that we could help with, it was always about handing that on to a proper lawyer. When we found a housing case we could help with, it was about handing that on to the council. So it was a sacrificial leadership in many ways, which I think is actually at the heart of what priesthood is and why priesthood is different from conventional leadership. Because at the heart of priesthood is saying, I will lead you as far as I need to, and then I will sacrifice my role in order to make sure you can get to the next level that you need to, whether that's housing or being fed or legal rights or vocation even, or simply your own sense of self. I think that deep down, our job is, as priests, to liberate people into the jobs they need to do, as opposed to controlling them all the way through. It's fascinating, folks. I think, as someone who's, I guess, been in leadership positions for many decades, that I've come to think that, on the one hand, humility, and on the other hand, stoicism, are critical features of leadership, and underestimated features of leadership. And what I mean by stoicism is a kind of sense of the inevitability, for example, that when you leave the job, someone else will come in and within a few weeks be saying, I'm changing everything from that previous person and it's all going to be much better. You can't control what happens after you go, for example. I mean, a lot of leadership fails because leaders can't accept humility. They can't accept stoicism. They think they have to be supermen or superwomen. And the other thought that occurs to me is I'm trying at the moment, I think, almost certainly unsuccessfully, to persuade people I know in Labour's hierarchy that they really need to do proper leadership development for the shadow cabinet because these people are suddenly going to find themselves running massive departments, multi-billion pound budgets, and the subject of incredibly hostile media glare. And to step into that without training seems to me to be a recipe for disaster. I say this because the question I want to ask you is, given your experience in Liverpool, did you think you were well prepared? Is the training for the priesthood the right training? It ends up being the right training, but it's training that appears at the time to not be because you are trained in terms of the deeply philosophical. You are tutored in St. Augustine, you're tutored in Thomas Aquinas, stuff that appears to be hugely arcane, very distant from reality. In fact, you realise that the past has a great deal to teach us in terms of what does structural integrity look like? Now, what do I mean about structural integrity? I think the ability to know when one's own beliefs should give way, I think, and in the times when one's own beliefs should stand firm. And I think fundamentally learning about Aquinas or Augustine or any of the great sort of teachers of the church, any of the great theologians, what did that do for me? Well, it gave me a realization that these arguments had been had before, that there is genuinely nothing new under the sun. And I think to, to refer back to what you've been talking about, about Labour coming into power, which I think is almost inevitable, 
the Tories have been in power for 13 years now. Realistically, the next Labour cabinet will need to have people taking quite senior government positions who have not had any experience of the civil service, of the media, of the press, of answering questions in Parliament. How does one cope with that? I think, well, as a priest, one copes with that by saying, okay, these are the roots of what I believe. So I think fundamentally what the Labour Party needs to do is to say, okay, who are our equivalents of Aquinas or Augustine? Who are the people who we know dealt with these questions hypothetically? It might have been 200, 300 years ago. How did they react to that? How do we then take those lessons into the 21st century? Inevitably, it's not going to be exactly the same. It is not going to be word-for-word identical responses. However, it may well be that there are lessons to learn in terms of style, in terms of substance, in terms of what it is that motivates someone to be part of that world. Because fundamentally, if you haven't been motivated by something deeper and bigger and greater to be part of the political world, you shouldn't be there. In exactly the same way that if you haven't been motivated by something bigger and greater and deeper to be part of the priesthood, you shouldn't be there either. So there has to be, to my mind, a sort of deeper well of judgment, of truth, I would go as far to say of grace, that you can draw on as one of those individuals to say, okay, how do I respond to this question? How do I respond to this issue? How do I respond to this 21st century reality? Well, inevitably someone would have responded to it before. And I think that's the challenge for those of us who find ourselves in leadership in the here and now. Great thought, Fergus. Thank you for that. While we're on the kind of leadership question, you, towards the end of the book, there are a couple of throwaway comments about the Church of England as an organization. And I don't want you to, or expect you to say anything that is career threatening. But let me run a, an idea past you. We may have come across it from the sociologist Max Weber. And Weber was really the first person to write about bureaucracy. And Weber, in a way, was a fan of bureaucracy. He thought it was necessary for the modern world, but he, he thought we needed to understand it and understand its pathologies. And one of the points that Weber made about bureaucracy, which I've always found very powerful because it's, well, partly because it's just so true, is that he said, look, in organizations, there are two types of objectives. There are substantive goals, and that's ultimately what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to improve life for people or make a great product or whatever it might be. And then there are procedural goals, and procedural goals are about following rules. So they're not about ultimate aims, they're just about the rules that bureaucracy generates. And what Weber said was that in bureaucracies, inevitably, the procedural rules continually drive out the substantive aims and organizations become driven by the adherence to the rules and have to over and over again try to remind themselves of what they're actually there to do. Now, I'm kind of interested, if that is a universal characteristic of bureaucracies, is it something you recognize in terms of your dealings with the Church of England? I'm not sure I've ever heard a better definition of the current state of the Church of England than that. Yes, fundamentally, it is about the procedural driving out what I would go as far to say is the vocational, the kind of deep sense that, look, nobody these days is in the Church of England for money or for power, right? We have relinquished 
both of those things. I mean, yes, the Church of England still controls vast amounts of real estate, but believe you me, it manages that so badly as to guarantee that there is nobody within the wider body of the Church of England, even the Archbishop of Canterbury, is making pittance compared to even your middle-ranking management consultant. So nobody is there for money or for power. And so you have to question, why are people there? And yes, what I have observed from the realities of the church wing now is it is completely suffering, I think, from a deep bureaucratic malaise, kind of managerial problem. Now, look, the idea of managers is not a bad thing, right? The idea that there are people who you allocate to oversee certain areas of policy or of practice or of whatever the reality of your institution is. Now, in the Church of England, that is the pastoral care of ordinary people. I think the problem is that we have become so distanced from the pastoral care of ordinary people and so concerned with the accountancy, with the strategy, with the day-to-day running of the bureaucracy, as opposed to the reason why the Church of England exists, namely the fact that people die, the fact that people are born, the fact that people want to get married, the fact that people in all kinds of circumstances search for the reality of God. And when those people see an institution that pays much more money to someone to pay for a a missional strategy across several counties or a property portfolio manager, they're going to ask questions about the priorities of that institution. And I think the problem with the Latter-day Church of England is it's appointed managers. The Archbishop of Canterbury was a oil executive. The Bishop of London was a sort of nursing officer. The previous Archbishop of York was a lawyer. We are appointing people to senior positions who have excellent management experience. The problem is the Church of England is not an institution that is managed like normal institutions because it's not McKinsey. It's not PwC. It does not operate in the same way. It is an explicitly sacrificial institution. Its whole purpose is that it exists to give itself up for the benefit of the people who claim to be its members. And the problem with appointing people who have classic management experience to the Church of England is that they become, as the Weber quote puts it very well, people who are slaves to the bureaucracy as opposed to people who are giving up everything in order to serve the people of God. Yes, really interesting. And the other thought it puts me in mind of, and again, something which you hint at a bit towards the end of the book, is I've spent quite a lot of time working in the third sector. And I used to say that if you look at kind of standard distribution of virtue, that in private and public sector organisations, let's assume a kind of standard distribution, but that I felt in the third sector, what you got was a concentration at either extreme. So you got some people in the third sector who were so completely driven by mission and by purpose and by belief and worked all around the clock for virtually nothing and were incredibly impressive. But at the other end, you got people who kind of went, well, I work in a charity, so I must be a nice person. How dare anybody question what what I do? They were kind of full of their own virtuousness. And I got a hint towards the end of your book that your experience of your colleagues is a bit like that as well, that some unbelievably inspirational people, but also some people who seem to feel that the very fact that they were 
priests meant that they could behave as badly as they liked and it would somehow be okay. Uh, 100%. That's absolutely right. And I think that whatever sector you're in, you are dealing still with the realities, the nitty gritty of human nature. And I found that, of course, in the church, in the priesthood, you are dealing with people who supposedly have made a kind of claim about themselves, that they are trying to put their human nature subservient to the realities of the living God, however you might conceive that to be. The problem is that that's all very good in theory. It's not very good in practice. And yes, absolutely. There were, I've spoken about this with friends recently, the very best people I have ever met, the most impressive people, the most efficient people in terms of delivering on their jobs, in terms of loving and caring the people who they're in charge of. The best people I've met have been in the Church of England and the worst people I've met have been in the Church of England because I think fundamentally, if you are going to talk about the extremes of human nature, as the Church does, it talks about how we're good and it talks about how we're bad. And as you said, I think that's mirrored across the third sector. I think that necessarily people will say, oh, yes, I'm working for a charity, therefore I am better. I don't need to worry about all of this stuff. I should have farmed it out. I've given it over to something else. I don't need to then do that in my professional life or my private life or my public life even because I took that box by working for this institution and taking a pay cut because fundamentally there are people I met within the Church of England who have multiple degrees from the best universities not only in this country but in the world who could go on to earn vast amounts of money to do great things but they chose to work for the church now for some of them that is truly a, a sacrificial moment for some of them that is a reason why they say well you now owe me something church of england and you owe me a career or you owe me a house or you owe me a status almost now in the 21st century that might seem like a quite a strange thing but it still exists and i think that it exists probably just as much in the charity sector or in government or in even in some of the private sector as well whereby the sense of entitlement is incredibly pervasive now we're coming to an end focus and i want to emphasize that this book is wonderfully enjoyable and because i'm pompous and full of myself i haven't done what i'm sure other people have interviewed you've done which is say tell us some funny stories about being a priest but the book is full of such funny stories but i'm far too serious a person to ask you about that and it's entirely in keeping with my style that we're going to end with a grim reaper death is a big theme in the book it's a big part of the job funerals you talk very eloquently very movingly about easter and the importance of easter you talk about your grandmother's death how important is death, the mystery of death, do you think, in shaping you and determining that you would choose to become a priest? It seems to figure really very highly for you in terms of the way you think about life and you think about the job. Yes, I think as someone who believes in the truths of Christianity fundamentally, you have to say that death precedes any understanding of new life. So if priesthood is, or even the ordinary human life is, a celebration of life as it should be, well, in order to have a healthy understanding of that, you ought to have a healthy understanding of death as well, because we're all going to have to encounter that at some point. 
And so, yes, I think undoubtedly it was a, a big motivator for me. Not fear of death, not a kind of idea that I had to be a priest so that I would somehow tick a box with God and be treated better after I die, but more a sense that a healthy understanding of death, I think, is part of the reality of who we are. And I think Christianity speaks of that much more convincingly than, say, humanism or materialism. I think it has a an approach to death that says, well, this is real, this is true, it's part of our journey, but it's not the totality of who we are. It's not the end. And so we have to view it in the context of both who we are before it and who we are after it, and who we are in the context of being known and loved beyond the single physiological reality of death. And you're right, I went and did my grandmother's funeral. I've seen good friends of mine die. Not many people have been in the presence of a dead body. I'd be fascinated to know how many of your listeners have seen someone die because it's a hugely emotional moment. I don't say that in a kind of voyeuristic way. I think what it does is it forces you to think about your own context in terms of your own life. So I don't believe in death as a kind of death cult. I believe in death as being important because I think it shapes how we then have to live. And that's the reality to me of Christianity, that how we live is shaped by the reality of the fact that we will die. And the reality that we will die is shaped in terms of how we live. And that seems circular, that seems paradoxical, that seems difficult. But that's what attracts me to the Christian faith, because I don't think it necessarily all makes sense. Well, Fergus, thank you so much. Touching cloth will go on my bookshelves, along with Francis Spufford's Unapologetic, which is also a wonderful book about Christianity, just like yours. And you remember Francis Spufford's definition of Christianity from that book, Fergus? No, I don't. Tell me. He describes Christianity as the religion for people who know they're going to fuck everything up. <laughs> Yes, quite right. Quite right. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Fergus, thanks so much. Touching Cloth is available in your local bookshop, but if you absolutely have to, you can buy online as well. Thank you. In the brief conclusions to these programs, I like to reflect sometimes on how the book made me feel about myself. Fergus's book, about what he made of being thrust into an important role in the local community... It made me envy being a medium-sized fish in a small pond, in contrast to my life as a medium-sized fish in, well, very big ponds. It seems to be the former experience offers more time to observe and connect and live in the now, free from the incessant striving that has characterised my career. And also, to go back to where we began, the role of humour. Like Fergus, I have a well-practised line in self-deprecation, and I'm not going to cast aspersions on him. But reading the book made me acutely aware of how this is a life tactic, which above all else gives its practitioners something safe to hide behind. And while we're talking about good deeds, please do leave a review or a rating on your podcast app of choice. It really does make a difference. Bye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. 
With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.